Well, happy Sunday, everybody. I'm here with Dr. Stanton Peel on Zach Rhodes. We're going to talk about, we're going to go back to our roots in creating this show and talk about mainstream narratives of drugs and addiction and, um, you know, how they're portrayed in the media and TV shows and otherwise, which is why we started this, the idea that one reason we can never come to grips with truths about drugs or addictions or think of them in a common sense way, the way we might in some other instances, like if it were our own family members or something like that, we can't actually get the general uh, fundamental truths about addiction into the air for some reason. Well, one reason, and maybe the, the, the fundamental reason we can't do that is because of the way that drugs are portrayed mainstream and the myths that just are so easy to latch onto and perpetuate. But we've kind of seen a change of pace, almost like a, a, a retroactive kind of idea about what drugs are or aren't in some shows. And actually, I thought before you wrote this piece about it, which I just gave that away, but I was thinking maybe I could come up with some uh, come up with some examples of that. And I think I could do no better than you did in your recent article for Filter. You know, you've come up with examples in shows recently and juxtapose them with shows in history where drinking was no big thing. Um, you know, we don't have to like tell a story of AA or if somebody's drinking a little bit more than, you know, a sip of beer, then they have to have a problem and they have to be in rehabs. So maybe you could, we could start with that uh, and talk about your piece and some of the key points in it. Well, I've always from the start been tuned into the media and I, I was aware before the concept of narratives came into play, there's a big article in the Atlantic about by a brilliant writer named George Packer, where America is divided into four groups. And he says, the freedom group, which is kind of upscale libertarian Republicans who say, well, no regulations, let us make money. Americans, which are kind of like white people who resent encroachments by immigrants, then there are smarts, which are meritocracy Democrats who say, mm -hmm. oh, let everybody achieve, except they control all the parameters of achievement, the schools and the education. And then there are justice. And those are people who reject the power structure in its most fundamental way, in a way they could just say, you're a white male and you're out. Mm -hmm. And so... Trish Packer seems like a pretty happy man. He's successful. He's not happy about this. He says, well, I don't want to, he would be in the smart group. I don't want to live in any of those Americas. And the point he's making is all of those Americas, they're different worlds. The same things happen in the world. We, we see, you know, there's COVID and there's economic whatever, but each of them experiences an entirely different world. It's like they live on a different planet. And so that's the most extreme form and it's developed in our time. But I've always been aware that that's true about drugs because something maybe similar happened to you. I would meet different people who took drugs and, you know, their experiences wouldn't be like what you saw on television. Right, right. And so let me just give one media example that I've always been aware of. I wrote about, um, in America, there was a noir film called The Man with the Golden Arms, starring Frank Sinatra, about a small time hood in Chicago. It was written, a book by Nelson Algren. And he goes to prison and he's a heroin guy. 
and he goes to prison, he climbs the wall. He actually, the film doesn't actually mention heroin. Everybody thinks it's heroin. In Nelson Augrin, it's actually morphine, but close enough. He goes to prison, climbs the walls. And then when he gets out of prison, he's always relapsing and climbing the walls. So that's the Nelson Augrin story. And maybe it's based on something. In 1978, they made a film uh, about a guy whose story is kind of unbelievable. And his memoir was called One in a Million. His name was Ronald Floor, and he became a major league center fielder in an unusual way. He lived in a Detroit slum. His father was an alcoholic and his mother was a healthcare worker. And he took heroin every day and he stole and he got arrested and he went to prison. And they had some, maybe he's a major league player who would come by, this is in Detroit, and he ran a baseball team and he saw LaFleur kind of walking around and he looked at him and he said, well, we have a baseball team wanting to come and play. And he said, I've never played baseball. <laughs> but he's, when you look at him, he's an athletic guy. By the way, when I, the first thing I think of when I look at Carl Hart is he looks like an athletic guy. I think that too. <laughs> I mean, and in his life story, he didn't especially go to school. He went, he stayed in school to play basketball. Hmm. Ron Floor didn't bother to go to school. He missed that part. He went to prison. And the guy said, well, come on out and I'll show you how to play baseball. Which he did. The story is called One in a Million. And he happened to have a cellmate who was a, a white guy embezzler who was friends with a guy who ran a bar that Billy Martin, Billy Martin's a guy, a lot of bad things are said about Billy Martin. But the guy in prison said, there's a guy here who's a good athlete. Could you guess Billy Martin to come out and Billy Martin came out to the prison and you know LaFleur was only in for burglary he hadn't shot anybody and Martin said well can he play you know in the Detroit farm system minor leagues and then two years later he's playing center field for the Detroit Tigers in the book the uh, the man with the golden arm has the, these scenes of you know Ron Frank Sinatra climbing the walls through withdrawal. In the book, LaFleur goes, well, I took heroin every day and I you know, didn't know what to expect when I went to prison, but I, you know, when I stopped taking heroin, I didn't really notice it. And he actually gave an explanation for that. His explanation was because every day he had lunch and his mother made him a warm lunch. Hmm. How do you interpret that explanation for avoiding withdrawal? Cause he, cause, right, because he came in for a soft landing from his, uh, you know, using drugs. And then what do you have to fall back on when you stop using drugs? It's not clear exactly uh, to what, it, you know, to what extent that pads the withdrawal. But it seems like it has the most major effect than anything. If the life you have to go back to is reasonably nice. Well, and, and, well that's why he didn't go into <clears throat> withdrawal entering prison. Although a lot of people don't go through withdrawal when the heroin. I mean... A lot of people don't go through withdrawal when they stop drinking alcohol. Mm -hmm. Or people go through withdrawal when they quit smoking and coffee. In fact, no, to say that is to make a radical declaration. Um, smoking and coffee are more withdrawal encouraging than alcohol and heroin. So let's go back. We're in prison. And the man with the golden arm, we don't want to tell a story about people getting better in prison. The man with the golden arm, he's constantly relapsing. And Ron LaFleur didn't relapse, but 
our explanation would be, well, he became a major league baseball player while he's in prison, which doesn't occur very frequently. Just as, you know, Carl would say, not a ton of guys in his neighborhood became uh, neuroscience professors at Columbia. That's not an actual cure. <laughs> However, you could see that would be helpful. Right. So it, they made a movie about Ron LaFleur's life. And I was two, a two-part TV series movie. And when I went, you know, when I watched it, I was fascinated. They're not going to show Ron LaFleur shooting heroin every day, going to prison and not noticing that he's not taking heroin anymore. That's not going to happen. So they have his, a brother, his brother taking heroin and going through withdrawal, and he has to be chained to a bed in the basement to overcome it. You're not allowed. It's against the law to violate. A, a deeper law than, you know, where they arrest you. Everybody believes something. You're not allowed to show something different. So, it's a pain. It would be a pain in the neck because you'd be doing something so different. If you, if you have a guy and it's part of your storyline that he's using drugs and then you just make the recovery from it trivial, it's almost like that's, there's a spotlight on that that either ruins the storyline or the onus is on you to explain, well, why did this happen? This is crazy. It's, right. it's a pain in the ass. You don't want to, I mean, it's just not worth it. You become the Ron LaFleur went to prison and stopped taking heroin and didn't notice any symptoms would be the story. And the story is about how a guy went to prison and became an all-star center fielder. <laughs> so I've always, and I write about that in The Meaning of Addiction. And so um, uh, um at some point, we're going to mention my memoirs out, by the way. Uh, um, I've always been interested in that. And so recently, during the pandemic, I was watching reruns of Gunsmoke. Don't tell me I've got, don't tell me i got nothing to do. And uh, if you remember, they spend a lot of time in a saloon. Uh, James Arness, Marshall Dillon's, it's not clear that she's his girlfriend. A kid, he runs a saloon. And people are always drinking, and Doc and Chester and Kitty and Matt are always sitting around drinking beer. But they never get drunk. Every once in a while, there's a celebration, so they'll break out some whiskey or something. And, you know, there's actually a town drunk, in quotations, but they take care of him, and nothing bad happens to him. And actually, in one episode, he becomes a hero mm -hmm. by not drinking. And so it's a whole community dealing. People drink. They don't have problems. Occasionally there are problems with an individual or violence. The community takes care of it. Say la vie. Alcohol and, and uh, it was at one point the longest running successful series in American television from 1957 to 1977. And that's sort of people thought of that way about alcohol. In 1987, a whole new concept was introduced by Candice Bergen uh, we'll cut it out of the article. Candy's Burden entered Penn the same year that Archie Brodsky and I did. Uh, and um, um, Murphy Brown is a journalist uh, newscaster who's a recovering alcoholic. And from that moment on, uh, recovery had already become really major in the 80s. And Betty Ford had gone to, mm -hmm. not became the Betty Ford Clinic. And 
all of a sudden, America's ideas about alcohol and drugs changed, alcohol especially, because they were always biased against drugs, to, oh, if you drink, you can become an alcoholic, and a certain number of people become alcoholics, and then you have to go through recovery, you have to go to AA, and then, like, uh, you have to abstain. And that became the cultural meme about alcohol, that you're not allowed to violate. And if you go to mom's, which is a story about a mother moving in with her, a daughter moving in with her mother, it's a big hit for five years. It's, I think it's just going off the air. Uh, Allison Janney is the mother, and Annis is the uh, daughter, uh, whose book, uh, Unqualified, I read and loved. Mm -hmm. There's no alcoholism or drug addiction in her memoir, even though people drink and take drugs. But she's a recovering alcoholic, and her mother's a recovering alcoholic, and that's kind of the storyline. So up until the present, there's only one storyline for alcohol, and we still have the man with the golden arm storyline for drugs. Those are the storylines. And now, however, we have streaming. And in streaming, well, you're, you know, first of all, it's all adults. It's not on television. And second of all, you know, if you don't like it, you don't have to watch it, you know. Streaming is like so, an eight. It's not like a sitcom. Because you don't have to keep uh, sitcoms, you have to have a quick character arc, like first episode in, and then keep it, and then make things either funny or interesting past that. But streaming is like it's not like a movie, because movies are like two or three hours. If that's a long one, it's like an eight-hour movie. So you kind of get to develop things in your own unique way, which I enjoy. It very. Uh, I'm going to name. There were three. I was instantly aware of streaming. I'm going to name three programs. What you say is somewhat true. Sometimes they go on for longer, and that's a problem because you have a storyline kind of going. Will it really work for two or three years? So, oh so yeah, what I meant, I think what I meant was, I think that these mini series kind of things, Queen's Gambit, uh, Mayor of East Town, which we'll talk about. Uh, yeah, that's that's the sweet spot. That's sorry, that's yes. what I that's what I meant to say. I agree, I agree, because you don't run into a corner where you have to sort of make something new happen. So I watched three streaming programs, um, In the Dark, which is about a, a blind woman who... Oh, yeah. And she's, she drinks all the time and she gets drunk. <laughs> I didn't mention this. I, I think Will's a little skittish around sex. Not everyone knows who Will is, sex. but he's the editor-in-chief of Filter Magazine, which you wrote this article for. And she has random sex. But then her, a good friend of hers, who's a kid, gets murdered. And so she sort of solves the murder. And she goes against a drug kingpin on the one hand and against a police captain on the other. So it's a cheap, you know, and she doesn't stop drinking. And there are a lot of funny scenes in there. Like she goes to visit the kids, sort of, I don't know, some relative of somebody, maybe the cop. And uh, she says, do you have any beer? And the woman has like a six pack of beer and she brings it out and she's not going to give her whole six pack away. She's like a normal person. And you can see the stars drinking the beer and thinking, oh, for God's sake, is this it? <laughs> and so she doesn't stop being an alcoholic exactly. But she and so that series might be ongoing. Then there's the is it called Jessica Jones, which who's a former superhero. And she now runs a private detective agency and she drinks until she blacks out. But she solves crimes because she runs a detective agency. And then there was Good Behavior, which 
start it was the funniest starting out but it had an impossible plot line it only went two seasons because their boyfriend is a hitman how many how long can you run with that plot where your boyfriend's killing people without people saying i'm not liking this and she gets out of prison she's on parole and she's in recovery but she still drinks and in fact she drinks with her parole officer and she still steals so already these aren't nobody enters recovery these are already, huh, I never saw these on CBS or NBC. And now we jump in to Mayor. Okay. And another program, you're, you're familiar with Mayor. And there's another one you're, I don't think you've seen yet called uh, Mayor is a streaming series. It's, uh, it's all out there. It was released one show at a week, uh, week finished a couple weeks ago. Um, it stars Kate Winslet as a kind of a detective in a small, outside of Philadelphia, post-industrial town. Things aren't going well there. And her life's got problems, too. And um, her husband committed suicide. Her father committed suicide and her husband committed suicide. And she's worried her son. about... What's that? Her son. Her well, son. Her husband didn't, right. Her husband committed suicide. Her father committed suicide. Right, her father. Son. Right. I think I, right. Her father and son committed suicide. And so she's worried, and she's, but his son's widow is alive. And they're fighting her for custody of the kid. And she's worried about the kid. So why don't you jump in about drugs and alcohol and addiction, starting with that premise? Look, I can tell you that right away, I thought a few things were going to happen. Like I rolled my eyes and I thought a few things were going to happen before I watched the show. Um, I didn't actually listen to this, but there was a podcast where they were talking to, I think the directors and producers and writers of the show. And, and someone told me about this because they thought I might be interested and people were writing in and saying, hey, well, you should have incorporated more harm reduction into the show. And, and so I thought right away, okay, so this is probably not going to be a show I enjoy. It's going to be an eye roller. It seems like what, as we'll get to what that person writing in must've meant was like you should show things like Narcan or you should show, you know, the staples and the billboard items of farm reduction. Because MAT, I, I would have thought MAT's not in the movie. Uh, yeah, right. MAT, that, right. Like, that was left out. Yeah, that's interesting. But what we saw in the show, I'll just give a broad and then we can get into specifics, was just sort of how that town probably operates, you know, and and it didn't focus in on stories about rehab. It didn't, I should say this, lots of people seem to have their difficulties, life difficulties, difficulties with alcohol, with drugs, with having to steal things to maintain certain habits, with just relationships, uh, with getting by in the world, finding purpose. And it wasn't totally clear which caused which or which was more important. The storyline was just, it's a, this is a community that people all kind of know each other, all have their struggles. And the main characters have specific struggles, but it's not, you know, there wasn't a storyline around, well, this person drinks too much, this person does too much too much drugs, and there's an easy fix. So there's, there's no arc based on that, which is interesting because that's real life. You know, that's if you go to a town like that, or if you just meet people and they have their problems, um, if you didn't know the stories that you're supposed to think, you might just say, it seems like this person has a lot of problems. It's not totally clear which is the most, you know, b biggest priority. The main character is um, 
And that's how we run our life process program. We don't go in, oh, <laughs> right. you have relationship addiction or you, owe, you have an eating addiction or you have a drug addiction or you drink too much. That's, that's it. That's boom. Right, right. As if you just need to fix that and figure out how to not drink so much and then you'll be fine or something. Or not like, drink you know. at all in, as a case of the normal storyline. So the main character, Mare, is a detective and um, she's this hardened character, more hardened than even you might think someone who investigates murders and things like that might be. And the first time I got worried about this was that you you could see that she has um, her, her son committed suicide. And I thought, oh, this isn't going to be like a drug-centered story and rehab-centered story. It's going to be a story about this woman's trauma. And so she's got it like, you know, she's never going to be able to make it because she's so traumatized. But what is really happening is that she drinks and they even sort of make drinking part of her hardened character. And she, she vapes. She vapes. She does. She has vices. She has, you know. I don't remember any character on TV or or movies before. I don't remember them being vapors as like a thing. And she vapes not even casually because you don't see her vaping all the time. She gets in high intensity situations, which her work requires. And we can get into her work, which clearly gives her a purpose that moves her away from, you know, any kind of hell she could have fallen into. But she vapes in, yeah, it's high intensity and she seems like what she needs to cool her head. It's almost like she's, instead of taking deep breaths, she's vaping and not really any other time. So that's an interesting harm reduction piece right there. She's not a smoker, but she vapes, which is probably safer. She's not, you know, you don't see her going to the gym and lifting weights or, you know, doing yoga or anything. But, you know, it's basically real life kind of a thing that somebody might do to relieve stress that she doesn't have to think too much about. They don't make too much of it. So that, I thought that was interesting. She very carefully, uh, they could make her look better. Uh, Kate Winslet stars. She's in her 40s. She's right. fabulously beautiful and shown nude in um, Titanic. Right. She's uh, middle-aged now, and uh, she specifically told them, well, don't make me, you know, they have ways they could make her look Almost like she did then, you know what I mean? It's but exactly true. It's everything was pretty realistic about this. Like you kind of see, I mean, you don't they don't say this in the story, but you can kind of imagine she probably just woke up for the gig and didn't really take a shower and probably threw a shirt and some pants on and didn't do anything with her hair and just a normal looking, pretty but normal looking person who has a tough job and you know forty five ish, whatever. Right, right. Even though she is totally a completely beautiful woman. She drinks. She she drinks Rolling Rock, which which I I thought was interesting. But you maybe cleared that up for me. I was thinking, well, she's from East Town, and that's a Pittsburgh beer. Why is she drinking it? But apparently, a lot of people there drink Rolling Rock. I was thinking, why not Yin, Yinling? Um, and she uh, she drinks for some of the same reasons she vapes. Although she's drinking to more like she's probably not going to wake up a day and not have a couple Rolling Rocks. Just sort of I mean, part of her routine. Every time social situation in, what's it called? East Town? What's it East called? East Town, yeah. Somebody offers her a drink, and virtually every time she takes a drink, except once I pointed out to you, she doesn't, which I think maybe the creators were trying to say, oh, if you think she's an alcoholic, she doesn't have to drink. Mm -hmm. She drinks a lot. Right. Um, yeah, there was, there was a, I don't want to, 
give anything away or like give minute details, but there was a time at a bar where you could see her kind of, she was in a little bit higher stress social situation. So she had the Rolling Rock and then she had a Jameson and she just, somebody else was sipping his same drink. He had a Jameson too. And she just guzzled it down. And there was that moment. He's kind of going like, huh, it's just, but it didn't last very long. It wasn't like the thing about that is, she was drinking a little more than usual, a little faster than usual, but you never see her get sloppy drunk or blackout drunk. It was never part of her storyline that this person's going off the deep end. It just was kind of who she was, a character that could go on living her life and, and just have these, maybe not even vices, maybe life enhancement strategies that could be better or worse, but they were what they were. And her mother, who's played by Jean Smart, who will come up again, she's sort of a miracle worker. She used to be in a comedy called Designing Women, and she's sort of a straight woman there. And all of a sudden, I don't know, she's about 60, late 60s, she's become a genius actress. And she plays her mother, and she drinks cocktails. So she right. and her mother both drinks. You could already go, wait a second. Her... I get confused. Her father committed suicide. Her, her, I think her, her father and her son both committed suicide. So you're thinking she's traumatized. Right, right. And, you know, and then what's the matter with her mother? And her mother has a sharp wit, but they have they had a good relationship. Her mother. I'll give away the funniest scene in the movie. Sorry. They go to a wake. Spoil, we have to say, spoiler alert. <laughs> spoiler right, go alert. They go to a wake. And for some reason, the guy whose wife has died, they, they, they <laughs> portrayed yeah. his dysfunctional relationship. Right. He decides to announce to the whole crowd. And everybody in this town knows each other. And um, they're sitting there. They're both maybe both drinking, uh, uh, Mayor and her mom. And the guy gets up and says, well, I really feel I need to announce it. I had an affair with Mayor's mother. <laughs> And Mayor just bursts in laughing. <laughs> and our mother's going, huh? And on the car ride home, it's the funniest scene. Our mother, you know, she's sort of a normal. She's saying, you know, maybe a couple of times. But no, okay, maybe a little more. That, you know, and she's sort of, but Mayor's just laughing. You know, Mayor doesn't, isn't asking for an explanation. You know what I mean? Or mm. just Asian. And our mother's, so anyhow. This is a uh... comedy, but that was funny. This is a white blue collar place, you know, generally, and and everyone sort of has their problems. And no problem seems to be insanely bigger than other problems on the surface. Uh, and at least it, and the problems that are obviously further advanced, like there's a person that that mayor knew who continued to break into his sister's house to to fuel his drug addiction. I mean, there there are things like that that are going on. Even that just came it's just dealt with in normal ways. You know, there's like, well, what can we do? You can hear them problem solving. What can we do? Maybe there's a shelter. It was stay. like gun smoke. You know, you're dealing with the family and the people. Right, right. And and alcohol is related kind of to the crime scenes. Mm -hmm. A young woman is killed. And you go through a lot of false, we're not going to give it away, but like one guy drinks too much and he had sex with her. I don't know, was she underage or just, a, it was inappropriate. I don't know, it was illegal. We're probably giving too much away if we say more about it. All right, but, so but anyway. the point of the matter is alcohol and drugs are in here. Right, And right. our son died, 
and her daughter-in-law has a drug background, which is what the fighting for custody is around. But like real life, drugs and alcohol aren't used as excuses, aren't accepted as excuses for otherwise bad behavior. They're not demonized for just being drugs and alcohol, and they're not accepted as excuses for an inability to be mature and live an adult responsible life, or, or they're not used as excuses to uh, absolve people of crimes. Which, and more than that, they never once mention AA or NA. Mm -hmm. uh, they never once mention MAT, medicine-assisted treatment. Rehab, the step, the daughter-in-law sort of goes off to rehab, but treatment's not in there. And then mayor, for one reason or another, has to go to a therapist with the police department. And her father committed suicide and her son, so she's got stuff on her mind. And so she discusses trauma, genetic inheritance. Well, wait a second, what's, is something inherited here? And meds, like the therapist says, well, you know, with your son, did you ever try, you know, meds and all? And say, well, yeah, but they had their good, and they don't say, oh, it doesn't land on something. Oh, trauma, right. as you pointed out. Or, right. oh, well, they stopped taking their meds. Or they didn't go to AA. None of that there's no ant, there's no solution or cause that they light on. They live through their life. There are things that there was a syringe exchange, I think, in the program. Was that was that in Mayor? Or am I thinking of a different show? Right. Where it was just in passing. It just it just was shown long enough to know that it existed in the town. And, I think uh, they were doing something else Ethan in that. Ethan wrote a small bit of my piece where he said he loved it. Ethan Nadelman, the pioneer in drug policy reform. Uh, there was a marijuana. They they were passing out a, a flyers about a missing girl. And there was a needle exchange and there was a marijuana right. shop. It sort of went through a list of modern harm reduction techniques. So uh, obviously... As you described, the creators are aware of harm reduction, but it's not a even harm reduction. It's a different level of harm reduction in the film, in the series. It's where once you say drugs are not and alcohol are not the cause of the problem and you're into real life, that's another view of harm reduction. Exactly. It, well, people have to come to grips with their lives. And as I say in my piece, Mayor could be viewed as a trauma victim. I, some people might watch a series and say that, but she's actually portrayed as an existential hero who pursues the truth. And she sort of pisses off everybody in town trying to get to the bottom of these crimes, including her very best friend. But that's her saving grace. She's trying to find the truth. And you fear well, she could go off the deep end, she has a brief boyfriend in there, but he has to go somewhere. And uh, I mean, her son's dead, you know, and can she have a relationship? And um, and the answer is she has a purpose. She's a police person. She's a detective. Yeah, yeah. She wants to find the truth and solve crimes because that's right. And that'll make things right. And that's her guiding beacon. And she can deal with life. So I have two points here, and the second one relates to that. One is that um, I still think about Carl Hart's book where he says harm reduction has to go, and I can't help but think, what if you wrote, like, 
just two pages of that chapter. You, Stanton, what if you had written two pages of that chapter? Because it probably would have read similarly, but you would have added on something. So what you were saying is that the harm reduction is obviously something that the writers are aware of. And um, I, I think that there's a person, this is why I brought it up earlier, a, a person that wrote into that podcast saying, well, you should have like, you know, shown more harm reduction. There are two ways of thinking about harm reduction. One is all the symbolism involved. So harm reduction, it's like this unfulfillable idea that these few items that are harm reduction, naloxone, um, MAT, um, needle exchanges. Well, the only way to totally fulfill the only way to totally fulfill harm reduction is if everyone has every every one of those things every single second of every single day, and they walk around with them, they always think about it. At, at which point, Carl's saying that's not possible, and now all you're doing is pairing the negatives of drug use with drugs in the public eye over and over again, and that's bad point taken and i totally agree with them you might say okay so how do you get to the other end of that if you have sort of a ideology built or a philosophy built around harm reduction that that is uh untenable in the end well how do you make it so and the way to do that is just incorporate those harm reduction sort of principles in everyday life and the way to do that is to kind of take life on balance and try to figure it out and reprioritize and figure out how to live the best life and with a purpose, which brings me to my next point, which purpose. And also in their own way, like gun smoke, there's a community there. It's a little dysfunctional, uh, but her mother is on her team. And, and, and there are also the whole her uh, husband's on her team. He's a good guy. When you have sort of a, when you have a culture like that that's closed-knit, there's something that I think transcends norms uh, that is sort of like harm reduction. Like you see Mayor, this detective, having to make ethical decisions, and she has to base that on what is actually the best for this person, and can I justify doing this, even though the law says I should do something else? Should I give this person a pass? Should I, you know, and everyone in that show is kind of weighing that. That's kind of harm reduction where you take people as people and you see their whole beings. Um, so she, she had this job that was so important to her. And at times along the way, you might say that she over-involved herself in the job and it was, that was sort of an escape for her you know, to not have to really sit and think about parts of her life that were, that were um, unfulfilling to her. And so, Beyond drugs, the thing I started thinking about is, well, could you reasonably say that she had an addiction to her work uh, and her work-life balance? Was was she working so much, the work that gives her a purpose and makes her feel well? Which they present that, a little bit because she sort of has a date and the guy says, well, you know, let's get together. And she sort of says, you know, that's not going to happen. Exactly. Exactly. They give, they give a few really concrete nuggets about that. Like, like she's sort of she's limiting herself uh, and what she could possibly produce because she's so involved in the work, and you can tell that it 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 wears her down over time too. Even though she's sort of like a a local hero and it she it's very meaningful for her. And then you see her work into a balance, shift into balance over time, where she is involved in her work, but she is sorting out other parts of her life. And it's not perfect in the end, but it's manageable and you could, and she could feel like, 
yeah, I could maybe make a five year plan and maybe even get a little bit better than I am now. That's that's like that's the sweet spot. That's the place you want to be is where. And that's what we do in the life process program. And that's in a way what we've lost with even harm reduction. Uh, certainly it never existed with the 12 steps is somehow you've got to fix the fiber of your life. That's mm-hmm. going to have to happen. We can go jump back to Carl Hart playing basketball and Ron LaFleur becoming a major league baseball player. You feel better about people's chances of recovery when they've got a thing that they get involved in. And that's sort of what you want to have do. And her, her own son never did. And, you know, they show him running around doing, you know, whatever, getting drugs and all. And that's what she wants for her grandson, which, you know, we're not going to see he's a kid you know what i mean mm-hmm. uh, but that you can't escape life issues by making up magical solutions and uh, harm reduction is a recognition that you know in the meantime it's good not to have people die you should have needle exchanges which they have they portray and you know you can even use naloxone you know to reverse overdoses i don't think that happens in the movie that doesn't happen but that ultimately you're going to have to confront life both as an individual and relationships, your kid, your mother, your potential lovers, and with the community. The community had to organize itself around this internal shock. Somebody murdered somebody within the community. They're going to have to digest that. And there are no shortcuts for any of that. And they have specifically made a show that describes those existential not, not conflicts, you know, journeys, odysseys. And they stuck with it, even though drugs and alcohol were kind of all around it. And so that's a whole new narrative. And, and of course, when you say it's a whole new narrative, you say, wait a second, <laughs> that can't be a new narrative. Well, it was in Gunsmoke, and it's been throughout history. People have done that. It's only in this recent period, and I don't blame it on, on you know, Candace Bergen, you know what I mean? And that show, they were, they came at the tail end of the 80s when, you know, after Betty Ford had introduced kind of like, oh, recovery, a nice person. Mm-hmm. Too much. Where recovery has become the main meme for depicting drug and out, certainly drug use. You're not allowed to use drugs. Um, I mean, they never could comfortably portray drug use on television, mainstream television. That couldn't be done. Uh, There's some, you know, efforts like, uh, you know, the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour and Tales of the City, but they both got bumped. You're not allowed to just smoke marijuana like nothing. But alcohol went from, you know, being a part of the community to being um, eliminated. And now this show bravely, you know, responds and says, well, wait a second, that's not what life's about. People are complicated, and and um, I think it really isn't art. I mean, it literally isn't art, but it's there's something uber artistic about being able to show all facets of a, each character that you portray, so that you can never really land on a label for them, and then also continue to make the show extremely interesting, like you waiting on bait with bated breath for the next episode. And, I think and obviously, the stars were way important in this. I mean, mm-hmm. Gay Winslet and 
Gene Smart. You you said that one of the characters that you were aware of. I'm only I only know the old ones. Um, it's uh, Kevin Bacon's daughter. Uh, oh, so- who was she? Soci or Soshi is her name. Uh, she's she was the she was the ex of her deceased son, the one who's uh, battling for custody. I mean, I think they were together. Oh, so she played her. Oh, right. You the, you know what I mean. The the, you know, the widow yeah, widow yeah. Her. So shit, that's Kevin Bacon's daughter. Fascinating, fascinating. And there's another show on HBO that you were less familiar with, and you were very, you saw all of Mayor, and as did I. Um, there's another show called Hacks. And in a way, it's more explicitly, first of all, because one of the main characters takes drugs. One of the people you identify with. Um, and um, uh, it star again, all of a sudden, um, Jean Smart, help me with my names. Is that the right name? She's the star of one of the two stars of Hacks. And um, in this, in, in Mayor, she's a little bit, you know, behind the eight ball, a little foggy, kind of a small town mother. In Hacks, She's kind of an ex-superstar comedian, brilliant, you know, always insulting people kind of comedian. And um, she's at the top of the game at Las Vegas, but she's losing it. And then they bring in a woman, a younger woman, 20-ish woman named Hannah. Help, can you give me the last name there? I Einbinder. Thought? Yeah, Einbinder, who happens to be the daughter of Lorraine Newman from MSN, from Saturday Night Live, who met her father, Han Einbinder's in AA. So that's a whole backstory. But once again, there is no, well, there is one mention of NA in Hacks. But here's the storyline uh, Han Einbinder is a little bit of a lost soul. She's lost her gig in LA. She's going out to Las Vegas to help Gene Smart kind of carry on and be a star. And she, she takes drugs, you know, as a normal course of events. And there's one, I can't give it all away. She's snorting cocaine with somebody in the bathroom and that situation doesn't end well. <laughs> and then meanwhile, um, generally, Gene uh, um, Smart drinks and you know, they both carry on with their drinking and drug use and Nothing is portrayed as unusual or bad about it. It's who they are, although they have both have problems. And then they, and it's a kind of a generational thing. Well, these two women were very different. And, you know, Gene uh, Smart's always rejecting Han Einbinder. And, but Gene Smart goes for a facelift. They don't give her enough Vicodin. And she turns to Han Einbinder for edible marijuana, cannabis, which, Hannah happens to have around and they sort of get stoned together and they become close. And then uh, Hannah Einbinder develops some kind of a problem. They go to an emergency room and it so happens she had taken cocaine with that guy. She had taken Molly with him and now she had just been doing edibles. And the doctor says, oh, for God's sake, you know, all the drugs you've taken, you're clearly dehydrated. And, you know, uh, Gene's smart character, un, you know, unlike her former screen identities, can get tough when she needs to. And she starts 
threatening the guy. You know, you know, I can defund this house, whatever she does. He takes a CAT scan and she has a burst ovarian cyst and she would have died if they didn't discover that and deal with it. And so that is a, that is right out of the anti-drug stigmatization harm reduction handbook. Oh, they're taking drugs. Boom. That's the problem. And that wasn't the problem and it saved her life. Mm. So this went one step even further than Mayor, Mayor in Easttown, this show called Hacks, which goes on longer. It's, it's still not over. And once again, um, Gene Smart has an adult daughter. And at one point she goes through her bag looking for drugs because the daughter had, a pre had been in rehab previously. And during her birthday party, the daughter's birthday party, Gene Smart says, oh, we can't invite any of her friends. They're all on NA. And that's the only time I believe they mention anything like that. It's sort of like a shortcut to saying, we're not going to deal with NA and NA people. Yeah, right, right. And so... And they have a toast during her birthday party. They run into problems in the birthday party because they, she has problems with the daughter. Her daughter hasn't become, grown up to be an independent human being. And, it, and there's things about Jean that made that true, but it's not her drinking that caused her daughter to take drugs. And her daughter, they toast at her birthday party and that was at a happy moment in the birthday party. And so, at, like Mayor, for some reason, uh, and there are other, there are one or two other programs I'm not going to get into. HBO is going into a whole new, it's almost like a corporate decision. Let's just change how we think about drugs and alcohol. Let's not have everybody who takes drugs. And this, and um, hacks, which is, I guess, like comedians, you know, hacks like, well, they just, Let's, it's the first show where a person kind of regularly takes drugs and her life isn't perfect and things sort of bad and good happen around the drugs. But that's not what the show's about. It's not a recovery show. It's not moms. It's not, you know, uh, Candice Bergen and Murphy Brown. It's kind of living life using drugs and drinking, which has always been true, on an ongoing basis. The only, the only way we'll ever change how we think about drugs and alcohol and deal with them as a society, no matter how many great policies they come up with at DPA, is when people change their consciousness, which mm -hmm. is what Carl's shooting for. When Carl says drug use for grownups, he's saying, you know, drugs. You, that's, uh, trying to eliminate drugs, you know, it hasn't worked. And we try to eliminate alcohol, that hasn't worked. And having a storyline where, oh, if you take drugs, that's bad. And if you drink regularly, alcohol regularly, that's bad. Don't do that. And let's try and get nobody to take drugs. And now they're actually, believe it or not, the World Health Organization is trying to get nobody to take alcohol yeah. by saying there's zero, uh, there's no safe level of drinking. And unfortunately, I use unfortunately in quotation marks, that's never going to happen. We know, A, that's never going to happen. It's never happened in history. B, it's, it's less better. likely to happen nowadays. Right. I mean, they have marijuana dispensaries in these, in these places. Right. I, I, uh, Hannah got her edibles. I don't know if they sell them in Las Vegas. They might, but they sell them in L.A. Drugs are more and more available, and people want to take them for whatever reasons, you know, and, and Gene Smart 
after a facelift, one in Vicodin because it hurt. And so we need a new relationship to alcohol and drugs. And um, so not only has it never been possible, not only is it less possible than ever, it's wrong to present the idea, and that's where Carl's going with Beyond Harm Reduction, the idea well, that drugs and even alcohol now, they're going back to whatever, the temperance, are always bad things. They're part of people's lives, like everything else, like sex and love and eating and even gambling and gaming, certainly, that have to be integrated. So maybe, at least for HBO, I, I just wonder what a survey would show about HBO viewers. What are they thinking about the characters' drug and alcohol use? Wow, what question would you pose? Like, what, what are what are two big questions you would pose to a viewer? Okay, let's say let's say to I our viewers and listeners. Getting the message. You think Jean Smart's problem with her daughter is that she drinks too much? And I would hope the answer is no. That's not what it's about. Jean Smart, her her husband kind of left her. I mean, she's an assertive woman trying to make a go of it, and that's a tough line of work. You know, it's hard to do. And and Hannah Einbeiner is facing the same situation at a younger age. Do you think Hannah Einbeiner's problems are due to her drug use? But before she takes drugs, they show her having fights with, she has like other fellow comedians and they all say, oh, the hell with her. She only thinks about herself. She's selfish. So they really lay a groundwork that each of the women, uh, they're appealing women, they're smart women, but they've got issues. And I'd, I'd really want to know to the audience, do you think Hannah, I would say, I would ask, do you think her problems are due to her drug use? Do you think Hannah should give up taking all drugs? Mm. Do you think Jean Smart should quit drinking? I would think that people would say, Jean Smart's not going to quit drinking at the age of 67 or whatever she, that's not going to happen. And it shouldn't happen. Here's a question I have about, similar question I have about Mayor. Should, imagine she, I mean, if, if you took away her vape, and or you took away uh, alcohol from her life, would that make her life better or worse? And if you took those things away, what would she be up to instead? I, Did that's, you a, that's a very, very simple off? question. Sorry? Uh, is there Not, something wrong with me? I'm reassured every time she drank, and she drank that extra scotch at a bar. I think it might have been around a date she was having. No, I'm, I'm not asking you. I'm saying that's, a, that's an open-ended question for people who are listening in. I, I, I'm of the same persuasion. Oh, you're throwing that out there. How would people react? We know how I would react. So we, we're wondering, would people think, I, I mean- I mean, I'll I, just, I, I'll I, just answer it. I, I, I think that those are satisfactory, those items have satisfactory places in her life. And it's not completely clear that if you just remove those things. So someone might watch and say, oh, what destructive habits, right? But that's not what the storyline's about, so you're really not thinking that way anyway. Even even if you did, and you had to think about that, you might ask, if you took those things away from her life, what would she be doing instead? And would she really be better or worse off? And that's why those movies, are, both those shows are great, because in an artistic and aesthetic way, they sort of make that clear. You know, you could get Mayor to stop vaping and never having a beer, but then what? You know, right, right. I like, 
you're you're thinking, well, that's not the answer to anything. And if anything, it would make her life, you know, let her have a beer for God's sake. Right. She's not hurting anybody. She doesn't get drunk and beat anybody up. That's not the way it works. So, so let me tie this in. My to... question is, yeah. well, your question is, do these narratives really reshape people's thinking? And I guess I would say something more like. Well, the leading edge of American, you know, movie making or show making is now it's beyond AA and NA. May, you don't watch Mayor and Hacks and think, oh, if only they went to AA, everything would be good. That's right. beyond that. Right. And they may almost have skipped, they've, and they may almost have skipped MAT too. Neither of the shows is about, you know, now Trek Zone. Um, in going beyond AA and the brain disease theory and returning to the real nitty gritty of life, it's, it's a real leap of aesthetic, uh, and, and, and uh, aesthetics and thinking. And I, I don't think it's going to change drug policy in America. I don't right. think the other organization is going to say, oh, you know, we're wrong. Right. People enjoy drinking. I don't think we can going to eliminate it from the earth. If it's good enough for East Town, good enough for us. <laughs> right now, I don't think. But I think that. it's a, a growing. Uh, it's a sign of advanced thinking that you know really, it, the a number of public health officials and regular people have reacted to the world. And we talked about the Atlantic article last time. Um, sort of reacted to the World Health Organization saying there's no safe level of drinking by saying, huh, are they saying we shouldn't drink anymore? You know, I'm a health conscious person. And I, you know, when the World Health Organization says don't smoke cigarettes, I, you know, I listen. But it's almost like, well, who needs the World Health Organization? There's alcohol and there's the World Health Organization. Who needs the World Health Organization, if I'm, you know, versus wine? That's sort of what the woman writing in the Atlantic was saying. Mm -hmm. I think I want to go with wine, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, God, there was one final thing that I wanted to say about. Well, anyway, the the whole storyline takes care of the the conversation about alcohol, too. That I think people go to a binary when it comes. Like, there are all these groups that try to answer questions for people about um, what should I do? I overdrink. What should I do? And there are these really... Um, there, there are answers that you could fit inside of a box and it's like, well, AA is one solution. And then there are people who posit themselves as, well, I'm non AA. So I'm, I think you should moderate your drinking, but it's I don't, do, do you think, do you think that mayor was ever thinking when she's drinking a couple of rolling rocks on the case that I better do this moderately or better only have one, I better only have two. And she, she just, it, it the way we think about it in the life process program, I think I once put it this way, addiction and drug and alcohol problems are not a problems of input, they're problems of output. <laughs> yeah, that's so beautifully said. I don't even remember Another that word, quote. That's beautiful. You know, I mean, Mayor has a job that she cares about. That's good. Mm -hmm. You know, you can tell her to quit at the age of whatever. She is 45. And then, then what would she do? And... She's trying to sort of have a relationship with a man. She's concerned about her grandson. She has a relationship with her mother. She has a relationship with the community. She has a relationship with her best friend that she has to heal. That's life. Yeah. Uh, I can imagine a mayor in the future who unwittingly stops drinking at some 
occasions. Like the same way that she's kind of gruff. Or she's kind of like, you know, ready for work. She's not trying to impress anybody, but then she starts going on dates and you could, she's cleaning up and cares about her appearance. And you might imagine that there are situations in the future where, whereas before she would reach in just off a habitual sort of repertoire of the, what you do in those situations, you grab a rolling rock and sit down and whatever, that she, would, that she wouldn't have time for that. And she would care about what, you know, the social situation called for. And there was one scene in the show where they say, you want to, you know, drink. And every time in the past, she said, yes, this time she said no. And it might've been because she's kind of zeroing in on some of the people in that room. Right. Right. So, By the way, you know. there was one, there's one other scene where they went, you know, they went Hitchcock, you know, or John Ford, one of the guys who, you know, he's got a problem, not a problem. He's listed as having a drinking problem. But, you know, he has a crime problem because they start discussing one of the crimes and he leaves his beer half finished. Mm. And you know, they're looking at that and she's thinking, he never leaves a beer half finished. That's right. I only am thinking about that as you, as you recall it. Yeah. Something, he doesn't want to be here having this discussion about <laughs> one of the girl victims. It's almost like a family member would say, hey, you okay? You didn't finish your beer tonight. You know? Right. <laughs> it's sort of like in a, you know, a, a great cinemas like Hitchcock or John Ford will show a scene. They don't have to write 500 words. They show one image and you're saying, huh, something's happening. You know what I mean? That's why yeah. they make movies. So, so I want to move into a, to a different topic, and you can take from whatever we've discussed already. What I should have said at the top of the interview was congratulations on, on publishing your memoir, which I know you've been working on for quite some time, and, and sort of uh, adding to it in real time. Like, you could have probably done that your entire life. You just keep adding new sections as things come up, but you finally put it to bed, and it's out, and it's for sale. We, it's called... well. Why don't you talk about it a little bit and, and we can discuss. I have well, a few questions for you. Uh, you know, obviously, at some point, you have to cut and what you call it, cut, bait and cut, whatever. Mm -hmm. You have to uh, quit. And the good news is things are still happening. And some of the things that are happening are around the memoir, like negotiating with people about interviews around that. Uh, the memoir is called... A Scientific Life on the Edge, which I developed originally with a big academic publisher. Uh, and The Edge is coming off the edge. Uh, you'll have to show the book in the future. It's got a picture of me looming against the backdrop of the Hudson River. And the subtitle is My Lonely Quest to Change How We See Addiction. So I, a lot of people like the cover. And it has some quote. And right at the top, it has a quote from Maya Salovitz saying, anybody who wants to take it, uh, learn about addiction seriously, think about addiction seriously, it has to come to grips with Stanton Peel's work and has some other back quotes. <clears throat> um, at the very bottom, it says, picture, Kurt, you know, picture taken by uh, Alex Clothier, who's my youngest daughter's husband. And then it says, um, overcoat provided by Moisha Fromberg. And uh, I have a cousin, Rich Fromberg, who was one of the people who proofread the whole volume. That's a mm -hmm. thankless task, thanks to Rich. And he has the same uh, last name as the coat provider because that's our, both of our grandfathers. 
Moishe Framberg, who was born in the 19th century. I don't think the coat was bought in the 19th century, but it's old. And, uh, you know, I was wearing it for the shoot, and sometimes I wear it as a dress coat. So there's a continuity in the books about my life. It combines, uh, there's a preface by Archie, a foreword by Archie, <clears throat> and it combines a story of the addiction world and what people believe, and many of the characters that you and I mentioned, Maya Zalovitz, Carl Hart, Ethan Nadelman, um, and my interactions with them, along with my growing up and how I created my ideas about addiction and how in many ways my ideas have been adopted. For example, there's something called process addiction and I'm sort of the inventor of process addiction, which is there are involvements that follow exactly the same patterns as substance addictions and I, that, for that reason, I don't believe in process addiction. I believe there's addiction and more or less addiction. With Addiction uh, is the process. With every process. And so, um, and, you know, there is a movement against the disease theory now. We've been, we're talking about harm reduction. And I'm somewhat famous in the annals of history around harm reduction and around obviously opposing disease series and, and you know talking about addiction take place so a lot of my big things are now I'm, I'm in a way i'm happening and yet i'm not happening because i'm still not quite on the mainstream i'm still pissing people off one way or another uh, my attitude towards mat my attitude towards trauma as being as being regarded as overall determinants of addiction and if we just address things in that fashion well bob's your uncle we're home free and even how to define harm reduction which we've been doing in regards to you know hbo shows i'm still i don't know what's the right term cutting edge pissing people off not in the bag uh controversial a contrarian a pro provocateur and you know I guess I identify, I identify with Mayer, and I, as I also mentioned in, um, in the piece uh, about the media in Filter, um, Tommy Smothers, he's a little bit of my hero. Uh, Tommy Smothers was one of the two Smothers brothers. They had a top-ranked television comedy hour, but Tommy, uh, they kept making references to smoke marijuana, and they would have anti-war uh, skits and mm. singers. They brought back Pete Seeger, who had been banned for being a communist, and he, he sang a song called you know, Knee Deep in the Big Muddy, which is like the big money was Delta Mekong. And the studio and the, as CBS banned it. They cut it from the show. And, and, and Tommy uh, Smothers, he just wrote it back the next week. Uh, he was, for, and uh, it's hard to know where this comes from. Tommy and his brother's kind of a Republican, Dick's mother's. Their father was an army guy. And Tommy Smothers went to San Jose State on an athletic scholarship to be a gymnast. That's not usually a background profile for a political radical. But Tommy Smothers was just a guy who would never let things rest. He had a, you know, a top 10 show. That's money in the bank. Although I don't imagine he's poor. But he wouldn't 
stop nibbling at them, you know? And, you know, they, they say, well, why don't you send in the script beforehand? And he'd screw with them, you know what I mean? He wouldn't, or he'd change things. And so, um, you know, he's one of, in a way, uh, when I wrote about Tommy Smothers being part of how marijuana was trying to be portrayed in the last century and didn't succeed, but now maybe Hanein Becker is doing it. Um, I feel like I'm striving in a never ending way to push the boundaries of how we, not to make things crazier, but to get deeper into understanding drugs, alcohol, and addiction. That's key. You're not a radical for the sake of it. I mean, I think here's what I, a couple of takeaways from the book for me. Um, one is that you can't help it. I mean, you have a vision about what truth is and admittedly, it's not like, you know, every truth, but you know, you, you understand the framework for what addiction is and, and what steps we could start doing to make progress so that we kind of have our thoughts in order and we're going the right direction. And eventually you've seen that as like something that will probably last that's a problem that will last even if it's going in the right direction beyond your lifetime. So one of the best things you can do, well, two of the best things you can do is one, do what you can to keep ideas from going the absolute wrong direction, or at least call it out when you see it, because that's the intellectually honest thing to do. And, and do that despite what jabs people might take at your character for doing so. And the other thing, the other best thing you can do is, when you see something like these HBO series that we're talking about, call it out, laud it, you know, make it accessible for people and help them understand what is right about this way of thinking. Um, and one other thing I try to do, I'm, of course, I'm working with you for doing podcasts, but you're part of the Life Process Program. We have a service. Mm. Let's just say it's not a disease 12-step model. It's, you know, based on my approach to things, we're trying to extend it to MAT with one of our co colleagues, Aaron Ferguson, where that's a tool, you know, naltrexone, methanol tools as part of enhancing a person's life structure, uh, which is what we've been talking about with Mayor and uh, Hacks, as there's, you can't separate addiction. Where we went wrong in, in television, and in the world is saying, oh, addiction is something outside the realm of normal things. I mean, we have a ton of psychologists. They practice CBT. We have social learning theory. People said, oh, well, that's what determines behavior and problems. But addiction, oh, that's different because that's drugs and alcohol in it. And that's wrong. And I talk about how it's wrong in my own life and in the world of addiction treatment and psychology. And the the life process program has this um, has something about it that is similar in a way. I hope I'm not going too far afield, but um, you know, people are fed up with mainstream news. It's like no one actually. I mean, very few people actually align with the more um, extreme ideas of either political side. They it's just it's just what's available, but then you have YouTube now and podcasts. And if you're a thoughtful enough person, you can sort of select the talking heads you want to hear uh, who are talking maybe in, in a more center or moderate or thoughtful at least way about um, 
current events and social issues and things like that. And you can even pick your genre if you want to. The, the life process program is a sort of thing that, well, it can't be mainstream because it doesn't check any of the correct boxes for, you know, insurance it's coverage. Or, it's not going to have a show about a woman snorting cocaine and taking Molly and that's okay. They're, they're not going to do that anytime soon. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, so we sort of fulfill a space that's clearly a real one for people um, with real problems who, who have the, in their best thinking don't really align with the extreme forms of rehab or whatever ideas are out there. I mean, I even, should I admit this? I don't know, but I, I had a guy that was working on, um, let's just say it was a, a lifestyle kind of addiction. It didn't have anything to do with drugs or alcohol. And we were talking one day and it was during the pandemic. And he said, Oh, I said, what? He said, I'm so sorry. I'm having a drink. And I was thinking, okay, you're going to have a drink. And so, Oh, okay. I just thought maybe this wasn't just, no, nah, I don't, so he was just, you know, sipping a cocktail while he was talking to me. And it kind of sounds funny. Like, well, your client's sipping a cocktail while he's at his therapy, you know, while he's doing his like clinical work for you the with, with addiction. Of a, of a internet cafe, internet therapy. Yeah. We're, we're offering, I mean, the ironic thing is they used to do surveys and say, oh, look how many people don't really accept the disease theory. They say they believe alcoholism is a disease. But if you ask them, you know, are people responsible for the behavior? They say yes. Well, right. that's not true. So there's a big untapped resource in people's natural beliefs. Because what we're saying is simply common sense. And it's true and it's right. And we're saying, well, we're some people who do practice according to those principles. If you are uneasy about going to AA and 90% of people drinking problems are, well, okay, uh, you don't have to. There are other ways to think about it. And it's not denial. It's a way that is consistent with who you are. And, you know, as I say, I mean, the worst accusation that could almost be made about me is you could say, well, you know, your approach is just common sense. If I would have had you know, my grandmother, she may be, not be alive. If you asked her, she would say some of the things you say. And then the second thing you could accuse me and you and LPP of, well, you're just using basic psychological principles. Mm -hmm. People understand that people are going to have fewer difficulties and less aberrant and abnormal behavior if they feel as though they belong and they respect themselves and they have positive activities that are ego gratifying. That's just like psychology. Everybody knows that. Yeah. And so in a way we're breaking down what is a great schism that occurred sometime. And I'm describing it, you know, in mayor, uh, in my clip with, uh, I, I like that piece of filter. It was the first one I've done this year for them where we shifted our way of thinking, you know, we shifted with drugs way back with the Harrison Act, 1914. So that's been going on for a hundred years and more. We shifted with AA, which was kind of became big, you know, around, you know, 1939-ish or so. And then it became dominant in the second half of the last century, this disease idea. It's a bad set of ideas. I think, I think Carl will go along with that one. And there's a few other people. Mm -hmm. And it's a bad set of ideas, and it's obviously not working. I mean, drug and alcohol problems are not going away. We're not dealing realistically with them. And from the start, I mean, when I wrote Love and Addiction with Archie in 1975, we were talking about addiction as being 
something that occurs in the mainstream of life on the one hand, and it's not limited to one drug. It used to just be heroin. And then we sort of broadened it to alcohol. We broadened it to cocaine and we broadened it to smoking. It's a whole way of relating to the world and it needs to be detached from any one substance, heroin or opioids, and substances in general for us to begin to understand it and to approach it, which is, again, that's the point of agreement with Carl. Carl's saying, well, that's not the problem. You know, the fact that a person takes heroin is not the problem or crack that we, that we need to deal with. I have one more insight about your memoir um, specific to you and something that I've noticed um, in our relationship, working relationship together, that you do really well in the book. And so I'll just reflect it and you can respond to it. And maybe this can be the last thing about, um, you know, we could wrap it up with this. You have a way of what I've called before vice signaling. Like you're kind of aware that, okay, you, you, you want to say, hey, I came up with some great ideas, maybe the most essential ideas, yet nobody's covering me. What the hell's up with that? Isn't that unfair? And it's kind of like you're anticipating people might say, well, you're a dick. So why would I cover you? And ahead of that, you you're kind of saying you you're it's like you're beautifully saying if you really think I'm a jerk, wait till you hear all this. And so it's like this is just kind of me. But then you become uh, whatever. I, as I'm reading it, and I have a bias and a, a different idea, but as I'm reading it, and I try to remove myself from just knowing you, I'm thinking you're a human being and you're you do things that make sense to you and you are in relationships that make sense to you. And it's all in the pursuit of intellectual honesty. So you kind of lay out for people. Okay. Here it's possible that in my interactions, my being sarcastic or ironic in interactions and trying to be convincing, it's possible. I'm not doing myself any favors in those situations. And on the other hand, is that like, is that a requirement for having truth be propagated and, and should people just be dying like they are with drugs and you know oh well stanton's offensive let them die is that how's that logic go? right I, right i bring that i've never spoken for the open societies foundation <clears throat> um is george soros has got a big uh drug thing i've lived in new york now you know i don't know 40 years, I've never been invited to speak there. And the head of it <clears throat> um, dislikes me for, I don't know what reasons. And the question would be, do you think that all the millions that George Soros has spent, and it's the Open Societies Foundation, that you should prevent Stanton Peel's ideas from being heard? Now, um, a couple more points. One argument I have with Ethan, the head of the Drug Policy Alliance, which was originally funded by George Soros, is um, Ethan told me that Kasia's husband was a big AA buff in Poland. And now he disputes telling me that. <clears throat> when Ethan uh, quit, um, when Ethan retired, from DPA, there was a party, and I'll say two things that happened at that party. Um, one is Bob Newman was there, and Bob Newman is a methadone guy who believes that addiction is a metabolic disease. And 
1994, before the Drug Policy Alliance was created, Ethan made sure I got the Linda Smith Award, which is for lifetime scholarship. And Bob Newman got an award too for his work with methadone. But Bob Newman doesn't know me. And it's something that amuses me. I don't know why it amuses me. So at Ethan's graduation party, I went up and I said, hi, Bob. And Bob looks blankly at me and I said, oh, I'm nobody. And one of the quotes I have at the beginning, which comes from Ulysses, maybe it was a little unclear. Uh, in his travels back from Troy, you, Ulysses blinds the Cyclops. And before he blinds them, he says, oh, my name is nobody. It's sort of like, I'm nobody, but you know, watch out. Right. <laughs> Second thing that happened in that interaction was I had already sent Ethan, it was quite a while ago, some pieces about my career. And I talked about a man we both knew, Norman Zunberg. And Ethan goes, Dan, and you're just saying that your ideas are better than other people's. And Archie, to his credit, you know, Archie's not a conflict guy. He said, oh, it's more than that, Ethan. Did you read their Stanton's pretty honest about himself. He's willing, you know, to let down his armor and let people see that he's, you know, not to say he's not a perfect person, doesn't describe it, that he makes critical mistakes and has a brace of characteristics. You know, not everybody who writes a memoir is willing to do that. So I had to, you know, tip my head to Archie and say, you know, the book has the good and the bad of me in it. There are going to be people out there who, uh, you know, prominent thinkers, people who are very well known that aren't going to like that you wrote about them. And on the other hand, uh, and, you know, if I'm almost worried to know what if in a, next, a future iteration of that book, if you put me in there, it's like, why I disagree with Zach Rhodes? I'd be like, oh, man. But only because it, it's pretty true. I mean, it's you say things very clearly, very truthfully, and you don't really you don't hold back. And it's not a jab any more than you take it yourself. So it really it and I lives do have, on balance. You know, at the back of the book, I do have you are allowed to just say, "Well, this is my relationship with Stanton." You just run with it, as does one of our other counselors, D. Cloward, and a bunch of other people in my life. Um, you know, it's sort of like. Well, here's what people experience Stanton like. And there's a few bad with the good. Yeah. Well, okay. You're okay with me. You're, uh, you know, I'm, as you, I mentioned, I'm 75. Um, you've given me some, a new life and likes to run on. You know, I'm still not going to win the Nobel Prize. But, you know, you've given me new venues. You give me new things to think about. You've got new hours of understanding yourself. We'll, we'll do a... Uh, we'll do a pay on to you some at some point, you know, what it is you bring to the table, you know, not like you're perfect in everything, but you know, you've got some nuances and clicks that you brought into this whole operation mm -hmm. that expand the, expand the base. Well, let's leave it there for now. We discuss uh, cultural media, television narratives about drugs, how they've kind of ebbed and flowed over time. And we're seeing a return of, just being able to have television shows about real life that look like real life. And, you know, we did that through discussing a few different HBO segments, which it looks like the HBO is the new real life. I don't know. Um, and we were able to touch on your memoir. And I would like to, as I've mentioned before, um, 
do a more extent extensive interview with you about the memoir um i think i could give you a an interview that that is un, uniquely um thoughtful i'm not that's my hope and, and uh, you're once you have a cover of the book you can prop it up there where you have that growing addiction so everybody can see it <laughs> exactly so right, happy sunday